About a month ago or two months ago, I got a letter in the mail, and I couldn't read it because the letter was in French. And it was a letter from my uncle's, my father's oldest brother's, from my father's oldest brother's lawyer. My father, my uncle had passed on, and it was a letter discussing his will. It was a letter discussing the inheritance that would come from his estate. I guess apparently he had written his will in 1972, and when he wrote his will in 1972, he was with a woman, living with a woman at that point. But in about 1973, they broke up, and they never saw each other again. She went on to have her life, he went on to have his, and he never changed his will. And so upon his passing, the entirety of his estate was about to go to this uh, girl that he had dated way, way, way back in 1972. And so I got a letter from uh, a lawyer, me and about 10 others who were from his uh, direct bloodline, asking if we wanted to contest that will and to take some of that inheritance for ourselves. Now, I really never met my uncle all that many times, maybe once or twice, so I didn't figure that it was right for me to try and fight for that inheritance. So I didn't do anything with it, and I don't know if they did anything with it there. But inheritances are are a really uh, really tricky thing. And there's a lot of battles and a lot of fights and a lot of anger and a lot of division and a lot of things that go on when it comes to inheritances. But know this, an inheritance is a blessing. It's not an entitlement, it's a blessing. And if you look at the stats for North America today, the stats say that around 40% of those in my generation have parents that can or plan on leaving them an inheritance. 40%. In fact, the stats show that 24% of us, people of my generation, actually don't expect to have anything left when it's time for them to go, but instead expect funding contributions from their children in the future when we are too old to provide for ourselves. Inheritances, they're a big deal. And you can see endless, you can hear endless stories of families being torn apart by members deceiving and tricking one another in order to target more of the money from an inheritance. I read of one story where an elderly lady was getting close to her time of departure. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a long-lost relative showed up. Perfect timing, right? And this woman was a part of a really tight-knit family, a family that called each other every day. They communicated all the time. But here comes this long-lost relative, and he makes his way in, and he befriends this lady. And eventually, he gained her trust and almost got her to change her will. To include him into the inheritance. But the family, sensing something wrong was wrong because they're so close, ended up intervening and sitting at the bedside of their mother for 24 hours a day while this relative was there. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually, the long-lost relative recognized, okay, I think I've lost here, and he disappeared just as quickly as he appeared. An inheritance is a good thing. An inheritance is an important thing. An inheritance is something that ought to be protected and enjoyed. It ought not to be given up for things of far lesser value. And if you go online, I I was just looking at a website here, and you can see these 10 unbelievable inheritance stories. So for example, you've got one here. It says there was a Portuguese aristocrat who left his fortune to 70 total strangers randomly chosen from a phone directory. Now, I'd like to 
get the Grimsby phone book and put it before this guy. He probably didn't use the Grimsby phone book. But for the most of us, we're never, we're never going to have something like this happen. We're never going to have, you know, here's another one. We're never going to have a long-lost uncle uh, give us a billion euros. You know, we're, that's just never going to happen for us. However, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have something far greater. The inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. It's beyond anything that could ever be given to you in this world. But here in the wilderness, the enemy, like he does with you and I, attempted to turn Christ's eyes away from his inheritance to the fulfillment or gratification of what Satan hoped would be the immediate desire of Christ. And you can think about that, right? The foolishness. If you were a man who was given a, a billion euros as an inheritance, it would, be of abs- it would be absolutely foolish to trade that inheritance for any fleeting momentary pleasure, wouldn't it? And yet, you'd be amazed. You and I as believers are constantly in danger when we sin. The enemy is consistently holding before us momentary lusts and momentary desires and momentary passions, hoping to cause us to despise the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus and inheritance is waiting for you, would you trade it for anything in the world? The enemy hopes you will. And he tried to do this very thing to Jesus Christ in the wilderness in this third temptation. He tried to make Jesus for forfeit his inheritance, to latch onto it before the timing of the Father. And had Jesus done so, we would have all been ruined. And is there any more, just to, just to kind of set the stage, is there any more tragic figure in Scripture than Esau? You remember the story of Esau? Isaac and his beloved wife, Rebekah, try as they might, could not conceive because Rebekah was barren. And they hoped for children. The Lord had promised them children. And yet here they were after 20 years, 20 years after their matrimonial vows, here they were still childless. And so Isaac turned to the Lord and he pleaded with the Lord and he begged and prayed to the Lord for the blessing of a child. And guess what? Like the Lord always does, the Lord came through. He granted Isaac's request and a pregnant Rebecca now joyfully bounced around the home. But the pregnancy was not all roses. A struggle took place inside her womb and she wondered, why is this happening to me? Why is this pregnancy so difficult? What is going on in here? And so she took her question to the Lord. And in Genesis 25, 23, the Lord gives her the answer to what is happening inside of her, saying, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. In other words, Rebecca, twins, but not just twins, nations from these boys in your womb rebecca will descend nations 
nations whose future is one of division and strife, and it will be against all societal norms, against all cultural norms, that the older will serve the younger, and the younger will be the stronger of the two. Now, when the children were born, it didn't seem like it would be that way, because Esau came out first with a body like a hairy red cloak. And he grew up as a, as a skillful hunter, a man of the field, an outdoorsman. He knew his way around a bow. He could stock prey, bring it home, slam it on the table for that night's dinner. And this consistent provision of food for, by Esau brought his father Isaac to love Esau more than he loved his other son Jacob. Isaac loved to eat all of the tasty food that Esau brought home for him. But Jacob, on the other hand, he came out second with his hand gripping and clinging to Esau's heel. Jacob, from the very beginning, was a man desperate to gain the inheritance of a firstborn son to the point where he, if he could have, he would have pulled Esau back and came out first himself. And what do we learn about Jacob? He was a fairly quiet man. He favored the indoors over the outdoors. I get Jacob. He spent most of his days dwelling in tents, and he was loved by his mother more than Esau was. Does this not all have the makings of a wonderfully harmonious family dynamic? And one day, Jacob was cooking stew in the tent, and Esau came home from a long day of hunting, exhausted, hungry, empty-handed, I would assume that a day out in the fields and the forests stalking animals is quite difficult and it's quite taxing on the body. Not that I know from firsthand, I know from watching TV. I like those Alaska-type shows and I see how long and hard it is for them to hunt. Never felt it myself? Maybe one day. But on this day, Esau, the provider, came home hungry and empty-handed. Not deathly hungry, mind you. Most likely he would have eaten breakfast before he went out that morning. But he was hungry nonetheless. And so as he comes home and he sees Jacob cooking and he smells the aroma of the stew wafting through the tent, Esau cries out to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew because I'm exhausted. Now, this is not a polite ask. This is not Esau saying, well, hello there. Might I eat some of your stew in a very courteous manner? This is not what's happening here. Esau crudely asked Jacob to let him smash the stew into his face. Esau wanted to just throw it up as fast as he could and let it just drip all over in hopes that some of it would get into his mouth. It's like a thirsty marathon runner as they're running down the road and they pick up the cup and they just throw it in their face. You know, you get a few drops in your face, the rest goes all over your face. This is what Esau wants. This is what he thinks he needs. It's not a nice picture, right? Red stew all over your face. But here he is asking Jacob to throw back some of his stew. Now Jacob, a crafty man, knew Esau to be an impetuous man. He knew Esau to be a man of immediate passions, a man who would do anything to gratify any immediate desire. And he dictates the terms for this bowl of his delicious red stew, saying, well, Esau, if you want a bowl of this stew, Genesis 25, 31, Sell me your birthright now. Now, in ancient Israel, 
Being the firstborn son carried with it a number of tremendous advantages. The birthright of the firstborn son guaranteed that they gained the majority stake in the family inheritance. Deuteronomy 21, for example, it's dealing specifically with problems that arise among those men who had two wives, but it gives us insights into the rights and privileges of the firstborn son, regardless of which wife bore him. Listen to Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. If a man has two wives the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him, listen to this, a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So you see, the firstborn had the right of a double portion of the inheritance. And the firstborn also tended to receive the more advantageous pronouncement of blessing upon the death of the father as well. And so here's Esau. He has the inheritance. It belongs to him. And he responds to Isaac's or Jacob's terms with obvious exaggeration. It's not like he's been out in the wilderness for 40 days or anything. He's been out for one day. But he still exaggerates and he still makes it out to be far worse than it is and cries out, in essence, I am starving to death. His exact words in Genesis 25:32 are, I'm about to die. What use of what use is a birthright to me? And so here you've got Esau, given the choice of retaining his birthright, of waiting for the day on which he receives his, in, his inheritance, the day when he would have more food than he knew what to do with, as his father passed down most of it to him. That's one, that's one choice that Esau has, or he's got another, gorging himself on a bowl of stew in order to appease his momentary hunger pangs. And Esau opts for the stew. Esau's cravings clouded his judgment. And as a result, he sold his birthright to Jacob for a measly bowl of stew. And for a man who minutes earlier claimed to be on the verge of death, his actions said otherwise. Because when Esau was finished, look at at what it says in Genesis 25. Esau ate, drank, rose, and went on his way. Doesn't sound like the actions of a man as close to death as he thought he was. And he didn't give the transaction a second thought, at least for a time. And Scripture goes on to say in chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. For Esau, filling his stomach in the moment was more important than maintaining a birthright that would impact his descendants, that would impact all of the future generations of his line. Esau despised his birthright, he treated it as worthless, and he focused on satisfying his appetites in the moment more, and more than that which matters even more greatly, but was still yet in the future. Esau was a man with no patience, who wanted everything given to him right now. He would even rather get inconsequential bowls of stew in the moment rather than wait patiently for his greater inheritance and his actions had far-reaching consequences much like those of adam and eve 
Esau's actions devastated all who proceeded from him. The nation that descended from Esau is called the Edomites in Scripture. And if you read Scripture, you will see that Edom is always spoken of negatively. The prophet Obadiah, for example, is all about the Lord's judgments upon Esau's descendants. Hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Obadiah in verses 10 and 18. It says this, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. That's a stunning judgment. And in verse 18, The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there will be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. And we hear more through the prophet Malachi about Edom. Listen to Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. After Israel returns from captivity, the Lord says to them, I have loved you says the Lord. But you, Israel, say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Strong words. Strong repercussions. Strong punishments from the Lord to Edom. And Esau is referred to three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 9, when Paul reiterates the Lord's hatred for Esau, Another reminding us that Isaac gave his great future blessings to Jacob rather than Esau. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we see the tragedy of Esau's life. We see the tragedy of Esau's decision to trade his inheritance for a bowl of stew writ large. In verses 16 and 17, when we are exhorted by the author of Hebrews to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Esau traded his birthright, traded his inheritance, and the results were catastrophic. And now in the wilderness we see Christ enduring a very similar situation to that of Esau. Now, do not hear me comparing Jacob to Satan. I'm not doing that. I'm not making any comment on Jacob's deeds here. I'm simply looking at Esau. We see Christ enduring a very similar situation to that of Esau. Scripture clearly speaks about the inheritance that is waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ, that was waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ. It was revealed to Mary when the angel came to her and told her that she would bear a son. And in Luke 1, 20, 32 and 33, the angel said to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we see also in Revelation, after the seventh trumpet is blown, that there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, listen, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Two times we see Jesus Christ is the heir, the appointed heir of all things, and he inherits a name that is greater than the names of all the angels. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. And what's more? And here is how this benefits us. Here is the impact on us. Here is the wonder of wonders. This inheritance that belongs to Christ, he shares it with those who believe in him. Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 16, verse, verse 16 and 17. He said this, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So you see, these are wonderful, glorious promises that have been given to us in Christ. Christ is the heir of all things. It was his birthright. And by faithful adherence to the will and commands of his Father, all of it would be given to him. And amazingly enough, all of it will be given to us as well if we are in Christ. And Christ is also given the inheritance of the nations. The very thing that Satan tries to tempt Jesus with already belongs to him. We see this in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. And there the psalmist records these words. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations are the birthright. The nations are the inheritance of the Son. And these are an inheritance that will come to pass in the salvation of a people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, and from every language. This is the inheritance that belongs to Christ. But first, before we can get to this, but first, Jesus must resist this third test of the devil in the wilderness. As Satan once again comes to Jesus and attempts to shift Jesus off course by holding before him the sight of all the kingdoms of the world, offering them to Christ now. Jesus, you can have them all now. And you can hear the enemy whispering in his ear, right? What good is a future inheritance if you are so close to dying right here in the wilderness? Just bow down to me, Jesus. Just one teensy, weensy little act of allegiance and I will give it all to you right now. So would Jesus follow in the footsteps of Esau and trade his inheritance 
thereby ruining all future generations, us. Would he say, what good is my birthright? I'm about to die. Give me some of that red stew. Would Christ's hunger in the wilderness lead him to grasp at his immediate need rather than wait on the Father's timing? Would he despise his birthright and treat it as worthless? Would he satisfy the appetites of the moment above that which matters more but is still yet in the future? It's all hanging in the balance here. As Satan comes to Christ with his third temptation in the wilderness. So we start in verse 8 of Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And so you see, this test is a little bit different than the previous two because Satan here no longer begins the test by saying, if you are the Son of God. Satan is no longer subtly attempting to trick or deceive Jesus into doubting the, the Father. This is a blatant and obvious attempt to bring Jesus to break the first commandment. Remember the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So how does Satan go about doing this? First, in the previous test, Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the high point of life in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, the center of politics, the center of their religion, and he called upon Jesus to jump from that pinnacle, saying, test God's love, test God's faithfulness. Test that he will remain faithful to his promises. Perform an act that will make him have to do what you think that he will do. I bet you he won't. Do something that will cause the entire world to know that you are the Messiah who has come to the world. But Jesus rebuffed the temptation, saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words... God's promises revealed to me in Scripture are sure and true. They are dependable, and I simply believe them to be true. There is no need to test God's promises because I know my Father always comes through. And so Satan now takes Jesus not simply to the highest point in Jerusalem, but to a very high mountain. And there he reveals to Jesus, there he shows Jesus not just the, the milling about of Jews in the temple below him, but he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. What a dizzying and staggering sight that must have been. The Lord had given great men in the Old Testament similar types of sights, right? Similar sights of the land of promise. Sights of the inheritance that had been committed to them. To Abram, for example, you remember back in Genesis 13, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So you see, the Lord gave Abram a sight of his, of his inheritance as a way of encouraging Abram. He did the same for Moses, although for a different reason. Moses was not able to enter into the promised land, but the Lord still blessed him by bringing him to the top of Mount Nebo. And there, according to Exodus 34, 1-4, the Lord showed him all the land. 
Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it. So Abram, the Lord gave a vision of his inheritance. Moses, the Lord gave a vision of Israel's inheritance. Jesus in the wilderness, the Father gives no vision. The Lord isn't doing the same thing for Jesus. Jesus is suffering in the wilderness with no sign or sight of the inheritance that has been promised to him by the Father. And Satan comes in and attempts to capitalize on what looks like the Father's absence. And it's Satan who does what the Lord had done to the saints of old, showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And in holding out all of these kingdoms to Jesus, he is in essence asking Jesus or saying to Jesus, why would you follow the path of the cross? Why would you go through all of that difficulty and all of that trial, all of that torment to gain some future inheritance when I can give it to you right now? Satan, the great liar, claims ownership of all the world's kingdoms and holds them before Jesus as though they could be secured through allegiance to him. This is a strategy that Satan returns to over and over and over again. In his attempts to destroy God's people, he consistently holds out to us, as he did with Eve, the fruit that we are not supposed to grab onto. Remember, Satan pointed Eve's focus. He pointed her gaze, her undivided attention to the fruit that was restricted from her rather than the abundant provision of the Lord given to her. And Scripture tells us in Genesis 3, 6 that this was the case. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, so she took of its fruit and ate. You see that? The fruit of the tree was a delight to the eyes. And now here we have Satan once again utilizing the strategy that has always worked for him, pointing one's eyes to forbidden fruit in hopes that similar to Eve, the fruit might be delightful to those eyes. Now what would Christ do with such a delightful vision? Would he reach out his hand for the fruit? Would he despise his birthright for a bowl of stew? No. All praise, all honor, all glory, all everything to Jesus. He resisted Satan's wicked temptations and he refused to step outside of the Father's will. He refused to, do, to distrust the Father's love and intention. He refused to bow his knee to anyone other than the Father. And Christ knew his scriptures. Christ knew that the very thing that Satan was offering him was already his. We already mentioned it, right? The psalmists who wrote prophetically about the son and his inheritance had said as much. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The son's inheritance is secure. There was no need to grasp for it before the time. And the same is true for you, brothers and sisters. Your inheritance in Christ is secure if you believe in him. But the enemy will continue to bring doubt to your mind. The enemy will continue to strive to turn your eyes away from the eternal blessings that are yours in Christ. He will labor, you, labor to bring you 
your focus to that which is sinful yet dazzles the eyes. But don't buy into it. Don't despise your birthright. Don't trade anything for Satan's stew. Look to Christ as your great example. Don't reach out for the sin that attracts and allures you. Don't reach out for the fruit that Satan constantly holds before your eyes and says, why not just take this? It's the easiest way. It's the easy path. Don't trade the splendor of God's blessing for the fancy outhouse of sin. And Satan knows you. He knows that some of you are tempted by some things. And others are tempted by different things. And he knows exactly which fruit to hold before you at all times. Constantly saying to you, all this I will give you. I'll give give you all of this. Just quit worshiping Jesus, right? Just take it now. Take it yourself. Appease your flesh in this moment. It'll feel so good, I promise. But he is a liar. A filthy, dirty, rotten liar. Sin never satisfies. Don't reach for it. Instead, look past the enemy's temptations entrust the Father and trust that you, fellow heir with Christ, will one day receive a blessing that is far above anything that Satan offers you in the moment. And so Satan took Christ to a very high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him in verse 9, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, in this temptation, listen to what Satan is basically saying. Look, Jesus, your father starves you. Your father has given you nothing out here in this harsh and forbidding wilderness. And here you are on the brink of death. Listen, I can provide better for you than he can. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world without you having to endure any suffering, any difficulty, any trial. I will most surely care for you, feed you, give you gifts, make your life easy and enjoyable. I will give you everything. And all I ask in return is that you fall down and worship me. Is it really such a big ask given that all, given all that I would give to you? Why cling to a father who treats you like he does. And again, this is something Satan attempts to convince all of us with as well. He tries to convince us that God is a terrible father. He tries to convince us that our father is one who abandons his children to the wilderness. And he is still working this angle in our minds every minute of every day. If Satan can convince us that our heavenly father has abandoned us, if he can cause us to doubt the father's good will for us, he will in turn fill that space with lies and with deception. And he will hold out momentary deceptions and momentary delights to your eyes and try to lead you away from the Lord to himself. Don't believe him. Don't buy into the lies. I have a little tactic I like to use when I sense that the enemy is trying to turn my eyes to the shiny fruit of sin. I try to constantly remind myself with the, by saying, the Lord is better, the Lord is better, the Lord is better, Jesus is better. And you know why I do that? Because he is. He is. Satan promised Christ an inheritance, all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He goes so far as to say, all these I will give to you. You see that? As if he had it in his power to do so. Another lie from the lips of the filthy deceiver 
Scripture is clear that Satan does hold sway in this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, for example, tells us that he is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We learn in Ephesians 2.2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We learn in Hebrews 2.14 that before the death and resurrection of Christ, he was the one who held the power of death. And we learn in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is definitely a powerful adversary, but know this, he owns nothing, let alone all the kingdoms of the world. Scripture is clear, God owns. God rules over all the kingdoms of mankind. The Lord spoke this so clearly through the prophet Daniel when he said, the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And so, even if the kingdoms of the world are in Satan's power, it is not within Satan's power to give them to anyone. Only the Lord himself can do that, and the Lord had already promised to give them to his Son. And had Jesus taken up Satan on his offer of all the kingdoms, had he fallen down in worship of Satan, no kingdoms would have been transferred to him. And Satan would have jumped up and down for joy, having ruined the hope of mankind, having stolen the inheritance of Christ and his people. But Christ knew, Christ always knew, the Father is better. He knew that his inheritance was coming. He knew that after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him by the Father, as he said in Matthew 28, 18. He remembered the words of the angel in Luke that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there would be no end. Jesus knew that the plan of the Father was to unite all things in him, according to Ephesians 1, 10. Christ knows, he knew that all of this, that all of it would be given to him upon his completion of the saving work set out for him by the Father after his resurrection. So the question then, will Christ be patient? Will he wait to receive the inheritance in the Father's timing and in accordance with the Father's will? Or would he give in to the enemy's temptation to A, speed up the timetable, or B, avoid the will and plan of the Father? And guess what, church? Glory of glories, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Satan's bowl of stew is outrightly rejected by Christ who said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. For the first time in these trials, Jesus uses Satan's name. This is the one who has always stood against humanity, and Jesus tells him to get lost. Satan's offering was not worth any mental power, not worth any thought. Jesus doesn't linger on it. He doesn't examine the fruit. He doesn't spend any time in contemplation of it. He immediately rejects Satan's advance, whereas Eve lingered. Jesus quickly dismissed Satan's ploy. For Jesus, the Father is always better. The Father's will is always good. Scripture is chock full of commands to worship only the Lord and never to yield in any way, shape, or form, even in the smallest measure, to those who call us to worship or respect or serve other gods. Because the Father is always better. For example, in Deuteronomy 13, we see the gravity with which the Lord speaks on this issue. Deuteronomy 13, 6-8 says, If your brother the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, 
whether near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. As you can see, this was a very serious matter in Israel. And it is still a serious matter. And here Satan is attempting to turn Christ from the Father to himself. And it is, Christ follows through on Deuteronomy 13 here. Because it's Christ's hand who is the one that stretches out to crush Satan in the end. When Christ finally stamps on the head of the serpent, throwing him in the lake of fire, where Satan will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But here in the wilderness, Jesus once again turns to Scripture as his offense and his defense and says to Satan, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy for the third time. The Lord gave this command in uh, in Deuteronomy, it's twice, Deuteronomy 6.13 and 10.20. He gave this command to the Israelites as they were just about to enter into the promised land. He said to them, I'm giving you a land that is filled with good cities that you didn't build, houses full of good things that you didn't bring, cisterns that you didn't dig, olives and vineyard plants that you didn't plant. And the temptation of Israel would be that they would eventually start to think that this land was theirs and they had gained it by the might of their own hand. They would feel the need to to increasingly control it, to grip it, to grasp tightly onto it. And if this were the case, they would eventually start looking for sources of power to help them or to assist them in keeping that land. And Israel succumbed to this, ended up constantly turning from the Lord to the gods of the nations for help instead of holding fast to the God who gave them the land. And as a result, they lost their inheritance. They were kicked off the good land and they were taken into captivity. And Christ quotes this text to the enemy, in essence saying, I'm not going to repeat the sin and error of Israel. I will not look to any other source. I will not petition any other power. I will not turn aside in any other way. I will remain faithful to my Father regardless of the situation in which I find myself. I know that He is my great provider even though it might not look like it in the moment. I know that He cares for me. I know that His plan for me is ultimately good and so I wait on Him for my inheritance. Be gone, Satan. And in all these tests... Satan sought something in Jesus. He sought pride. He sought distrust. He sought impatience. And he could find none. Jesus was singularly focused on loving his father. And he he knew his father loved him. Jesus loves his father and knows that his father does not share his praise, does not allow his honor to go to another. And so Jesus remains firm. And when you remain firm against the tests and temptations of the enemy, look what happens. Verse 11, the devil left him. Jesus resisted the devil and the devil took leave. Jesus was victorious and the devil was defeated. Now Satan would return throughout Jesus' life and ministry, continually re-offering these temptations again and again. And every time the result was the same. Satan resisted, Christ victorious. And when all was said and done, Jesus conquered and defeated Satan. When all is said and done, Jesus vanquishes our enemy. 
Jesus remained devoted to the will of God. And now in the Spirit's power, we too who are in him can follow the path that has been carved out by our captain, by the author, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the perfecter of our faith. And we must rely on the Spirit to follow in the footsteps of Christ as we strive and labor to resist and rebuff the temptations of the enemy. We have an inheritance waiting for us, and we will one day, if we truly believe and we truly hold firm, we will acquire possession of it, an inheritance greater and more wonderful than anything you can imagine, eternal life, maximal joy, pleasures forevermore. And Satan is, at every turn, hoping to rob you of that. He hoped to rob you of it back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he failed, and he still hopes to rob you of your inheritance as he sought to rob Christ of his. Every single day of your life, the enemy holds bowls of stew before your eyes. For Esau, it was a literal bowl of stew that caused his downfall as he caved and sold everything he had to fulfill his craving. But what is it for you? What is the bowl of stew that the enemy is holding before your eyes? What is the craving that the enemy is trying to get you to appease instead of looking forward to your inheritance? In what ways does the enemy bring you to despise your birthright? Perhaps it's money. Perhaps you love money so much you are willing to sell your birthright, you're willing to sell your integrity, you're willing to sell your honesty just to get a couple more bucks in your bank account. Don't do it. Perhaps it's the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever. Perhaps it's a battle in the mind. Whatever it is, don't give in to the enemy. God is better. The Father is better. Jesus is better then the enemy is going to continue to try and turn your attention in the direction of things that you think will fulfill your desire, but they're not worth your inheritance. Satan knows your weak points, and he's continually bringing you these visually pleasing, perfectly warmed up, great-smelling bowls. But the problem is that once you actually taste it, you realize that it is bitter, and it wrenches your stomach And a host of problems ensue as a result. And all of this because Satan is a liar. See, when we come to Christ, here is what Jesus said in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, our Christian lives are a constant battle because we have a a hostile enemy. We are engaged in a bitter fight who assails us every step of the way with the temptation not to deny ourselves, as Jesus said, but to fulfill ourselves and he uses any strategy to or and opportunity to achieve his foul ends you and i are in conflict with a savage opponent who assaults us with his tests not to take up the cross savagely assaults us with continual temptations to the to take the cross we're supposed to be carrying and put it down to avoid the life of obedience that Christ calls for regardless of the cost to us. Satan works to get us to choose the life of ease. 
to choose the wider and more spacious path. Listen, the enemy will say, you know, you don't need to preach the gospel here. They may not like it. The authorities might give you a fine. You might lose your job. Listen, just put the cross down. Take the easy way. And each time we give in to Satan's temptations to fulfill and gratify our desires, we have put down our cross in favor of Satan's stew. Don't do it. Jesus is better. He's always better. God's will is better and leads to our ultimate joy and delight. And on the day when we receive the inheritance that has been purchased and won for us in Christ, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 will ring so true. Remember them in the moments when Satan is holding things before you. Remember, Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And there is also help in the here and now as we come to the end of our text. While the angels might have stood at a distance while Christ was tested, after Jesus resisted, they supplied and comforted him when they were through, the tests were through. Look at verse 11. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. The idea of ministering here is they provided him with food, they attended to his needs. Ultimately, you see, the Father did provide. And Satan was proved a liar once again. Jesus clung to the truth even in the wilderness. Even when everything seemed to say otherwise, he clung to the truth that had been spoken to him before he went out into the wilderness. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that truth propelled him through the wilderness. So for each one of you who truly loves Christ, for each one of you who has faith in Christ, who has repented of your sin and turned to him as Lord and Savior, by virtue of your being in him, this truth also applies to you. You are God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. And the enemy will marshal all of his forces to bring you, to cause you to doubt this truth or to try and get you to doubt this truth. But will the truth be enough to power you through the wilderness times as it was for Christ? Or will you follow in the footsteps of those before you? Don't sell your inheritance for some crummy fruit. Don't sell your inheritance for a measly bowl of stew. Jesus is better. Keep your eyes fixed on him no matter what might come. And in the end, here's my guarantee to you, it will all be worth it. Father, we thank you so much for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who is here with us, helping us as we engage and are constantly engaged in this battle against an enemy who seeks to destroy us and to rob us of our inheritance. Please, Lord, hold us tightly. We cling to the promise of your word that, uh, that Jesus says that he loses none of those whom you have put in his hand. And so we rest in that promise. Please give us the power of your spirit to hold firm, to remain steadfast, to fight the battle well, and to always have our eyes focused on you as our all-surpassing treasure, our great delight, our great joy. We thank you for all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.